from the Clock Tower Mountaineer, this is the C.S. Lewis Book Club. I'm Dan. And I'm Alex. We're C.S. Lewis enthusiasts, not experts, just like you, so we can all talk on the same level. And today we're talking about Prince Caspian, chapters 1 through 7. And as always, this is the point where you pause the podcast and go back and read the book. Uh, we'd love to have, have you join us and follow along as we as we focus on a few parts we like. That's right. So there will be spoilers from this point on. That's right. Next week, uh, we will finish up Prince Caspian, and that's chapters 8 through 15. Uh, a few minor housekeeping items we have. Uh, first, uh, we mentioned the other week about The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, read by Michael York. Anything else we need to say about that, Alex? Yeah, so if you look up Michael York, I think you'll recognize his who he is. That's It's kind of fun to, like, after you've read through these, if you don't know who the narrator is, to then, like, recognize. I actually didn't recognize uh, the woman who's the narrator for Prince Caspian. Her name is Lynn Redgrave. I think it, these books have, are all narrated by, like, uh, people who are probably may, maybe a little more famous in Great Britain. but Big deal people. Yeah, so we'll get some big names coming up in the next couple books. So for these chapters, the Pevensey children, these are the same kids from before, are pulled back into Narnia. They discover that, though only one year has passed for them, many hundreds and possibly thousands of years have passed in Narnia. They rescue the dwarf Trumpkin, who then recounts the events leading up to the rebellion of the old Narnians against the occupying Telmarines. So I th- that's basically where we're going. Obviously, in that summary, we're I'm kind of we're kind of skipping over a lot because we're uh, Trumpkin's story is a huge part, and that's basically what we'll be talking about today. Any themes as you were reading down that you felt like came up or that were noticeable to you? Yeah, absolutely. I think you kind of have first the word that comes to mind is apostasy of like you had old Narnia and their beliefs and their ways, and then you have the occupying Telemarines. And I think there seems to be a lot more of a focus in this section, at least one through seven on belief and that obviously the Telemarines don't even believe in dwarves or any, any magical Narnia creatures. And then the Narnia creatures themselves, like the dwarves, don't actually uh, believe in the tales of the old Narnians and Aslan and other things. And so it seems to so far be something that... Yeah, you wonder, almost wonder if, do they really not believe, especially from Miraz, you know, the... the... He's not really the king. He's kind of the steward. And you can get some, uh, for people who know a little bit of British history, there's like the, uh, I think it's called the Interregnum. Um, I'm not sure, but with Oliver Cromwell and the, this man who kind of took the place of a king, but he wasn't really a king. You kind of get that same theme in Middle Earth with Denethor, the, the steward of Gondor sort of thing. So you can tell that mm-hmm. they're drawing on British history to kind of give story elements. Uh, but the way that Miraz, this steward of Narnia, the Telmarine, you almost wonder because he he takes such hostility toward even the mention of old Narnia, yeah. whether he really doesn't believe in it or he just doesn't want his subjects to believe in it. You see kind of the, the tyrant uh, control of the populace and what they can believe in the doctors. You can almost like a... Just like the witch when she wants the, the animals to lie to her when she sees them That's, having their Christmas right. party. Right, there's, there's a definite propaganda type feel. Uh, so some, some of the themes that I noticed, um, I've, you know, I alluded to the book uh, Planet Narnia last week. 
by Michael Ward. And this book, as far as the medieval cosmology that he brings up, is all about Mars and kind of like the cosmological feel of Mars. Mars is Ares or the god of war, right? There's some allusions, and as, as they're appropriate, I think I'll, I'll bring some up as we're going. But there's also this theme of belief and doubt in a post-Golden Age type scenario, right? When the Pevensies are reigning as the kings and queens of Narnia, um, belief in Aslan is, is so easy because he's there, right? Yeah. Or he was there, or it was in very recent past. And now, just like our modern and, day... And even the, the structure that he set up was the exact structure everyone's living in. So there was a feel of, you're just already living within the framework that he'd set up. Yeah, you can tell that with our own history, especially Christian history, he's trying to set up, like, it's difficult to have faith in our modern day. Yeah. And, and so that type of difficulty in believing, is it mythology or is it true? And you have the different ways that the different char the characters in this book um, approach faith and belief. And now it's not necessarily in, in, in some ways it is in Aslan himself, right? Whether the belief in Aslan or it's in the belief of even the Pevensies or yeah, that. Or magic. Or, or magic yeah. generally, right? You know, and, and Cornelius, who's considers himself an amateur magician, you know, he talks about magic in two different ways. There's, yeah, <laughs> I, right? no, I noticed that because on one hand, when he asks him, like, if he believes, he's like, yeah, like, I, I want to believe. And mm -hmm. he talks about, like, thinking he sees stuff, but he's like, at the end of the day, I, I don't know. <laughs> it's like, but even he, who's like, seems like the connection to old Narnia, especially for Prince Caspian, seems like, yeah, that he does, his faith is not <laughs> rock solid. I That's guess. right. And even amongst the old Narnians, right, there's belief in themselves as, as far as Caspian's concerned. Like, I wouldn't have believed in Aslan, you know, but then I wouldn't have believed in you either. And here you are. And so, to him, it's interesting that even the old Narnians kind of have this difficulty in believing in the things that happened so long ago, except for Truffle Hunter the Badger and that him being a badger makes sense because he holds on, right? That's yeah. the characteristic of the badger. And he's a beast. And I, I think he, he short counts his own faith by saying, you know, I'm a, I'm a badger, so of course I believe. But I think, you know, he's a character of, I think, a lot of integrity and especially an integrity of, of faith. So let's start. Going through the book, as it starts, it, it's interesting. Um, before the Pevensies had to go through, they had to almost seek out Narnia. Mm -hmm. But then what happens? They just here? get sucked off the train platform, right? Yeah, they, they, <laughs> I can't remember who makes the comment, but it says, as, as they all start feeling this sensation, one of them says, it feels like magic, you know? Yeah. I don't know what that feels like, but <laughs> I can imagine. Um, but they're... they're they're, it's like they're called into Narnia rather than they seek it out. They're pulled against their will into it, and we'll find out why. Um, but then what's their experience, right? When, when they come into Narnia, it's almost like they have to go through this renovation. Finding themselves again kind of thing. Yeah, they have to. They just get dropped off on a beach, and there's not really a welcoming party. Their castle's totally destroyed. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. They're coming back to Narnia possibly thousands of years later, but they're younger than they are they were when they left. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of a funny little and and C.S. Lewis, I think, wisely doesn't try to get in too into the nitty gritty about time travel or yeah. you know, trans universal <laughs> travel. <laughs> you just, you know, you just kind of kind of accept that. But you can see why they have a hard time figuring out where they are at first. 
they they start seeing ruins and a lot a large part of the the very beginning of the book is you kind of are aware the reader's aware what's going on yeah right they're they're in the ruins of a castle and they're almost like duh (laughs) you know (laughs) because we've already suspended disbelief as the reader of a fantasy story we're always already like well they're going back to narnia so obviously they're in care yeah it's just hard for their minds to wrap around that they've been gone and that time has passed differently there you know how sometimes it's easier to to see to see insight in a situation or someone's life um when you're the one who's the third party outside of it you just get to look on and be the armchair quarterback and say oh this is what you need to be doing or whatever like in this situation is C.S. Lewis, do you think, trying to set that up where the reader, it's obvious we know we're in Narnia, but for them, like coming to these realizations is slower and are there things maybe we're slow about realizing for ourselves because we're in the story versus outside of it? Yeah, I think, you know, I think you're right. I think that uh, what's almost tricky about it is um, I think he's, if I were, if you were to experience what the Pevensies are experiencing, I don't think you would just accept it immediately. I'm not sure what that means about, I mean, what's the equivalence in real life, but I do think that C.S. Lewis is doing something that's pretty astute. He's not just doing the thing that I, that he knows the read, readers will think. He's not just saying, and obviously they knew because they were being pulled back into Narnia that they were going to Car- Yeah, I think he, um, and obviously I'm defending C.S. Lewis because I think everything he wrote was so smart, right? <laughs> but uh, I think he's intentionally doing that to show you, you know, Sometimes we think when we're an outside, you know, an outside viewer, um, that the hero should know certain things or, you know, oh, if I were in that position, I would have figured it out. And I I think there's just a lot of, uh, wise doubt. Maybe you wouldn't, you know, it's always harder to be the person going through the trial than, you know, the spectator saying well you you know parenting's like this the easiest thing in the world (laughs) is to tell other people how to parent their kids and the hardest thing in the world is to parent your own kids yeah and i think you know we get that so much the judgments of other people about how to engage with the problems that are in front of us because it's so easy to assess it from outside literally this morning i'm making breakfast for my kids and doing the dishes and it's chaos and i thought to myself my parents were feeling just like i'm feeling this morning every day <laughs> and i think that all the time when i'm looking at my little kids and trying to do my best and just like man just they're so <laughs> naive <laughs> clueless right and then it, and it gives you such a respect for your own parents in a way that from a perspective that you didn't have until you were got there old <laughs> yeah so uh one of the first allusions that i see to kind of the martial spirit or like mars and uh the name for mars or Aries in the Old Norse mythology is Tyr. It's T-Y-R. In Old English, it's Tues or Two. You know, it's like the where we get our our day of the week, Tuesday. Huh. Right? So what's Tuesday in Spanish? Um, Martes. Martes. Mars. Can you hear nice. that? Yeah. <laughs> so Peter, they, fi- they finally realize they're in Caraparavel, and it's sad to them because it it's this indication that everything they knew about Narnia is dead yeah. and gone you know but they luckily by by magic they find their old stores they find they go into their like armory and they find the gifts that they that Father Christmas gave them you know tools not not toys yeah not toys 
and Peter pulls out his sword. And it's, I, I love that uh, there's like this British tradition of naming things that I don't think we really have. You know, his sword has a name and it's Rindon. I can't, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing Our it. Our distant cousin here in the States is your vanity license place. That's right. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> yeah, a little more commercial and, and consumerist. But he holds up his sword and says, uh, my sword Rindon, with it I killed the wolf. And, and the other kids see Peter almost as High King Peter. Yeah, yeah. Right. He's like enacting something by declaring that sword. Uh, Tyr, you know, that old Norse god, uh, his hand was bitten off by a wolf, Fenrir. And uh, so this, this idea of like the combat with the wolf is, is an allusion to that type of Ma Martian <laughs> mythology, right? And Peter is show, shows that he has the good parts of kind of the warlike spirit or chivalry and by conquering the wolf. And so you can see there's, Lewis is setting up this type of theme, this Was feel. It, wasn't this C.S. Lewis's expertise as far as? Yes. I mean, it's uh, definitely part of his expertise of and definitely part of his passions was the, the med medieval cosmology. Uh, even when he was a little kid, I think I've heard that it was like he, when he was six years old and I have an almost six year old and that makes it hard to believe, but he, he started writing a story called to Mars and back again. So even Mars has like this really special, um, meaning to him. And when he, he wrote, uh, a science fiction series about space travel, his first book is a travel to Mars. Hmm. So he's kind of like, um, reviving that passion of his. And so I think there's, there's a lot more meaning in this book. Uh, you know, I was telling you before we started that Prince Caspian's always kind of been the hardest book for me to really like get into. Like when I'd go, I want to read a, a Narnia book, you know, for me, it's like, oh, I want to go read Magician's Nephew or The Horse and His Boy. Those are really kind of my favorites and even Silver Chair, right? And I usually kind of skip Prince Caspian. So even the way that the story goes, it's like, I'm not just remembering it. I had to read it again to, yeah. to even know what the plot lines were of the well, book. One other thing that the, this moment where they see him as King Peter reminds me of is I think we always, uh, well, I think the scriptures frequently will talk about us remembering our identity as children of God and how important that is. And, and once you see yourself as your true identity, you act differently, you behave differently. And feel like a little bit of that's going on here definitely as as... yeah because you know it, and it's interesting because the pevensies are the heroes right they're the the figures of the myth and you almost think oh when we call on the hero the hero will know what to do that's so that's we're... a good point they themselves uh they're not seeing themselves as the way all the other old night like peter shows up and similar to what we'll talk about this later prince caspian's like well if you exist then aslan exists right <laughs> and you know they're the touch point but for the pevensey kids their touch point is aslan and narnia right yeah and i think that's just an interesting perspective of the hero coming to save the day and i think understanding your own worth your value who you really are the heir of narnia i mean heir as in like the the physical air in, in, that they're breathing kind of helps them become invigorated with that with that power you know once they're in narnia they start kind of acting like it a little more but i don't think that it just is comes without them actually paying the price of courage yeah that's well that's a chapter eight thing but well when edmund's fighting the dwarf and 
he, it says, I think, like, he started to, like, get his skills back as he confronts the dwarf and starts fighting him. And yeah, I like that. So once they realize that they are back in Narnia and Carapervel, way later, you know, it's ruins, it's, so many years have passed, they see something happen. And, oh, yeah, and also Carapervel is now on an island, right? Oh, yeah. They, it was a peninsula before, and so that was part of the difficulty. And No, Carapervel wasn't on an island. Yeah. And so they're on this little island, and they see in the strait between the island and, you know, the larger, the mainland or whatever, some people rowing a boat. They've got a dwarf with, with them. They're going to execute the dwarf and, and the two men are, are terrified because they're in kind of like ghost haunted territory right telmarines don't go to this island because it's the reputation of this island is that it's haunted right this is part of the propaganda that the telmarines and miras specifically are like don't go into the woods the woods is is dangerous and they're willing to believe in these like superstitions even though the the attitude is that we don't believe in these old mythologies and i yeah. think that's kind of a funny juxtaposition right yeah, I like that. So a little bit later on, uh, once they've they found the dwarf, they pull him out of the water, they start talking to him, and, and they re- it, he tries, and, and then it has to restart. It's like, all right, we're going back to the beginning. Well, they, they re- so they rescue Trumpkin. Trumpkin's the, do- the dwarf. And Trumpkin's kind of like, are you guys ghosts? You know, because he doesn't really believe. Trumpkin's character is really interesting. He doesn't necessarily believe in, in fact, he doesn't believe in the old mythological tales. And so he just assumes they're ghosts. He's more, he's almost, well, he's seen these kids there on this ghost haunted island. And so he's kind of like, I don't know what's going on here. But he, he at least is using logic and he's trying to understand what's going on. Later, when, at the end of chapter seven, when he, when he tells the part where he's leaving, you know, um, he goes, even though he just, he's not a believer, right? Yeah. So, um, so he has this transformative process, this almost conversion. And you can see a lot of C.S. Lewis in Trumpkin. Like yeah. Lewis calls himself the, the most reluctant convert, right? And, and Trumpkin's kind of the most reluctant tr- convert. But there's, char- there's aspects of Trumpkin that allow him to be converted to this belief. Um, there's almost like a kind of Thomas the Apostle sort of vibe to him as well. Yeah, I like it when they're, when they're talking about blowing the horn and sending people out to go find somebody. I think he says something like, all right, I'm fine if we do this and I'll go, but don't tell the troops that we're doing this because I don't want to get them to get their hopes up for something silly. And, you know, just, and it's not going to matter that you blow the horn anyways, but, but you're my king and so I'll do what you say. That's right. He says, I know the difference between, um, between giving advice and taking orders. I've given my advice. Now it's time for me to take orders. Yeah. So even though he is this like doubting and almost like curmudgeonly sort of, naysayer not a naysayer but like you know he's skeptical he has humility he has humility he has the sense of honor he has a moral code yeah and it's a chivalric moral code understanding his place in the line of command i think there's that's something i always look for i think in life in general is i just want to know that people that do have a moral code and that are trying (laughs) that they're gonna find their way that they're gonna make it to aslan (laughs) they're gonna make it Right. Yeah, I think I think that you if you if you understand somebody's intentions, you can see their motivations. That's even more important than the conclusions that they come to. In some way, I have more in common with somebody who believes something different than me, but for the same reason that I believe what I believe. Yeah. Right. If they're getting coming to their conclusions through uh, intellectual honesty and humility, um, using logic as a tool instead of as a weapon 
Right. Right. Then what they come to, you can kind of trust. The, the conclusions actually aren't that set in stone. Right. They can shift because as the evidence changes, their conclusions will change. And you can see that's kind of a characteristic that Lewis is setting up as being important because there is a counter to the Trumpkin type attitude. And that's Do you see that in another character? Specifically, yeah. Nickabrick, right? Yeah. The okay. other dwarf. So, um, so Trumpkin, he, he, once he realizes who the Pevensies are, despite his disbelief, despite his skepticism, he tells the Pevensies how he came there, what the conflict is that they've come into, and realizing they are the re response to Susan's horn being blown. So when the Pevensey kids left Narnia, Susan's horn was on her horse, not back at the castle. And so it gets lost, except and it becomes this relic. And this is something that Cornelius gives to Caspian, Cornelius the half-dwarf. So then Trumpkin, realizing that these kids are the response to the, the horn being blown, starts telling them the story. And the story starts with Caspian and his um, motivation for leaving. Caspian is a Telmarine. He's the son of the previous king, Caspian the Ninth. So he's, he's Prince Caspian the Tenth. But he's not the king. Miraz is. And he doesn't know this. But Miraz killed Caspian the Ninth. And is willing to let Caspian the Tenth become his successor because Miraz no doesn't have a son. That's right. So um, Cornelius, you know, wants to or you know caspian actually at first is uh is has this desire to believe in the old mythology because he had a nurse who would tell him as like nursery rhymes to him miras finds out gets rid of the nurse and then gives him a tutor instead and it's like the worst pick for a tutor and this is why <laughs> it's almost like miras doesn't really believe in the old mythology because there's this learned man and obviously a learned man would not be somebody who would tell these these types of stories. And I think that's, that alludes, you know, kind of to C.S. Lewis's own conversion is he started feeling like he was unsafe in his own atheism because he was around all these really wise people, J.R.R. Tolkien, one of them, you know, who also believed in Christianity. Hmm. And he's like, where can, a, an atheist can't go anywhere safe to stay in his atheism. He says something like, um, uh, an atheist can't be too careful of the books that he reads, you know? Because yeah. one of his, one of the books that he read by G.K. Chesterton called The Everlasting Man was really important in his own conversion. And he thought G.K. Chesterton, he was drawn to him because of his intellectualism, not because of his Christianity. And so Cornelius is like one of these intellectuals, even Miraz recognizes him as an intellectual and entrusts him with Caspian's uh, education. But, you know, he can't be too careful. <laughs> so Cornelius knows that then Miraz, his wife has just had a son and he knows the danger. What this means is he'll probably have Caspian killed. So he tells Caspian all the Narnian uh, mythology is actually true and that he needs to get out of there. And so... But before that point when he was talking about it, so when I was reading it, I kind of, and I was probably going too quickly, but I felt like he kind of made it sound like he... Wanted to believe it, but, you know, sometimes he heard the dwarves and whatever else, like we talked about earlier. But when he was leaving, he said, it is true. He was just kind of hedging his bets before 
the moment he sends him out in the forest. I didn't remember that part. Well, I, I think Cornelius believes that it's that it's true. It's just he doesn't know if there are real still Narnians. And by Narnians, non-human Okay, so beasts. they did exist. His questioning was if they still existed. And he hadn't seen maybe direct evidence. That they yeah, did. and he's kind of hoping um, that that Caspian will find somebody. You know, he's not, he hasn't seen any dwarfs in his life or any talking beasts in his life. So he's um, he, he's a believer, but he still is skeptical about how alive that world still is. Yeah. You know. Okay. Well, so there's a there's a moment that happens. He gets out in the woods. He he ends up getting knocked out, and then he's pulled in by um, a badger and two dwarves, and they're talking about believing in Aslan. And you've got Nickabrick and Trumpkin and uh, Truffle Hunter. Truffle Hunter, and um, it's cool because Trump Trumpkin's essentially questioning the beaver a little bit, like who would believe in Aslan nowadays? You know, obviously you have that doubting doubting Thomas, like you talked about. And Caspian says, "Well, if I didn't believe in him before, he said I do believe, but if I didn't believe him before, I'd have to believe in him now because according to all the people up back there that we were living with." you guys weren't supposed to exist and yet here I am sitting with you and the badger says uh truffle hunter says and and for that like you'll always be my king like she she recognizes the wisdom in in what Caspian just said right there mm-hmm. so so I thought it was really interesting like how maybe the unbelief of other people in certain things can actually help our belief if we are approaching it the way Caspian is in the situation if that makes sense like He's sitting in front of dwarves, and yet he grew up with people who didn't believe these things existed. Um, so maybe I was, w- what experiences might be similar for you um, where you see other people's unbelief actually inspiring for you, maybe? Yeah, the way an, uh, skepticism, right, can be inspiring is you know that that person is dedicated to some level of empiricism, right? They, they'll believe the evidence that is shown them, and the, because they don't believe just means that they don't, have the evidence and so you can almost skepticism or disbelief can be possibly it doesn't not always but it can be this indicator that the person is um is empirically driven they're almost honest or humble in the way that they believe things they're not just believing any conclusion they want proof and so there is an element uh to the virtue of skepticism but skepticism can be taken too far, right? No, I love that. This is this is a little bit of a light bulb moment. Like you are one of those people, for me, where you 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 do rely so much on logic when and how you approach the things that you learn about and how you talk about things, and you do rely on empiricism. And so, the fact that you are somebody who also holds on to your faith. Um, it it gives me um, more confidence in our discussions and what we talk about and how you think about the world, um, and it's it's faith building, it's faith promoting uh, to see your skepticism at work. I guess. Yeah. Thank you. I, I hope that my skepticism is just an intellectual humility, where it's like sometimes we'll take what's been labeled science or you know modern materialism and we just take it for granted. But there's a lot of faith there too. You don't know about. I mean. Uh, this is a silly example, but you've never experienced the roundness of the earth. 
And there's a lot of people who will claim they believe that the earth is still is flat. That's always yeah. a shocking. That's very, <laughs> very shocking. Right. But what they're doing, you know, you can see that there's a little bit, uh, there's a little element of, of benevolent skepticism in that where they're, they, they, they're admitting that they haven't ever experienced in the way that they would understand the roundness of the earth. Um, but just the, not to say that believing in flat earth is a virtue, but the idea that so many things have been presented us by our intellectual betters about truth claims, you know, and, and if we just take it without looking into it ourselves, uh, we forget that most of what we believe is a, a faith, right? You can have a faith in Richard Dawkins, right? The, he's a physicist who's an outspoken atheist, right? You can have faith in everything that he says, but what he's telling you is is not known for sure either. We have uh, understanding of even particle physics, and it's like nobody's seen an atom. They're just conjectures, right? Now, a lot of them have plenty of evidence, but when you start realizing that so much of we take of what we take for granted, we're believing on faith. Now, religiosity and faith in uh, a God or Jesus, you know, in Christianity or whatever higher power isn't too much, isn't too different. And so you can see where you need to have some realization that the understanding you have is not the ultimate understanding. And that spreads through more of your life and belief system than you realize, I think. The nice part is, is Christianity or Religion at least uh, calls out faith directly, whereas maybe science doesn't use the word. Right. We just go out on a limb with yeah, <laughs> yes. wherever. So, sometimes science is uh, religion wearing a mask, and that's even scarier than any religion, in my opinion. Yeah. So let's, let's take a break, and we'll come back and talk a little bit more about what Caspian finds. Hey, so now I want to talk about Nicobrick, right? And this kind of goes along with what we've been talking about. Nicobrick's problem is not belief. In fact, you can kind of see the negative side of belief in Nicobrick. He has no problem with believing in Aslan even. But he's a pragmatist. And and C.S. Lewis, the way he's talking about pragmatism, not American pragmatism of William James, but the pragmatism of continental philosophy. Do you want to break that down real quick? Well, <laughs> William James practicism versus well, continental philosophy. What, what was going on? One of my favorite books about like belief is is by William James. He's he's an American pragmatist, and so that term I don't think is the type of pragmatism that C.S. Lewis has a problem with. William James says that if you want to believe something, or if you want if you want to know something, you have to start with belief. Belief is the path to knowledge, and that's kind of the opposite of what the pragmatism of somebody who's Machiavellian, that's that term we've used before. Somebody yeah. who's Machiavellian, the, the phrase, the ends justify the means, is kind of how you, you can um, distill that into a, a single sentence. And so it comes, it, it, the, I think the distinction makes sense when it's, um, are you pragmatic, meaning practical, right? Are you pragmatic in your, in your motivation or in your self-assessment, right? So even Jesus would say, by their fruits ye shall know them. Well, that's pretty pragmatic. You're saying, what are the results of their behaviors? And that's a way you can know somebody. But he's doing that as far as an assessment, right? But the motivation, you can be idealistic in your motivation. Uh, Me- an assessment of what? Of yourself, of, of whether or not your motivations were were good, right? Maybe you can be, I think, 
um, forgiven for going about something with good intentions. But if the good intentions lead to a bad conclusion, you have to reassess. Now they're not good intentions anymore. Maybe the first go, they were good. The second time, you can't. You have to be a scientist. You have to reassess. You had to care about the fruits. You had to care about the outcome. Otherwise, were you really? That's right. So be <laughs> yeah. a pragmatist with the outcome. But your your initial motivation can be really idealistic. Oh, I want, I want to help people. I want things to, you know, you can say head in the clouds. I want to world peace and solve, you know, hunger and all this type of good sounding things. But if you don't have a way to get there, or if your hypothesis for how to get there ends up not giving you the result, you got to reassess. Okay. Cause, cause so in business, a lot of times with, uh, I've tried to apply things like, okay, mercy and trust and things like that in a business deal. And what I've had to start to realize is I wasn't doing any favors for the other person because it was actually being viewed as, I don't know, maybe I'm being permissive in the name of being kind or trusting. And then when that trust is taken advantage of, um, it hurts me. It hurts other people involved. It's, it's actually creating a lot more damage. So that's where you reassess and say, okay, what is, what is, kindness or <laughs> mercy or trust look like in this situation while still protecting everybody involved like it pragmatism on one side uh but but still lead with beliefs lead trying to incorporate these real these good principles we believe in but focused on what's the outcome and then kind of uh, adjusting along the way yeah right and that's the scientific method in my mind is you have this prediction you have you you experiment with the means you experiment with how to get to that, that end. And if you don't get a result, you got to go reassess. So you have Nickerbrick, who's also a dwarf like Trumpkin. Trumpkin is somebody who says he doesn't believe, but he goes back, goes about doing what he needs to do, being obedient, you could say, especially to who he recognizes as the, the king, Caspian the 10th. Um, you have almost like a parable of the two sons uh, from the New Testament where uh, Jesus question, you know, poses a question who, who's, the more, I, I don't know, who does the Lord approve of? And he, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but you have the one son who says he won't go work in the vineyard and then, you know, has a change of heart and goes and works in the vineyard. And then you have the other son that says he won't or he will go, but then doesn't. And so you can say, you know, obviously Jesus is using a time appropriate, context appropriate way of saying it's your actions say are, speak louder than words. Yeah. Right. So you have Nickerbrick who's you know, I'll believe in anything. I'll believe in As Aslan. He even says he'll believe in the White Witch if it will get the Telmarines out of Narnia. <laughs> you know, and so you have this like yikes, <laughs> yeah, right, right. You have another <laughs> another saying that's kind of along the lines of Machiavellianism is the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? That's only true if what matters to you is the conclusion, right? You're working toward a conclusion instead of working by this moral code and then accepting whatever conclusion comes. He just wants the Telmarines out, so he'll believe in the White Witch. And Truffle Hunter reminds him uh, things were worse under the White Witch. In fact, the tyranny of Miraz is is almost silly compared to the tyranny of of the White Witch. It's almost boring, but it's like this political tyranny. Yeah. The, the oppression is through taxes and you know and 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 propaganda rather than an, an interminable winter. This, this reminds me of the way that uh, a lot of people nowadays approach religion in that I've, 
I don't know how frequently I've heard this just in the last year of like, they engage with religion because I like what it does for my kids. I like the community. I like these things. And so it's kind of like that where it's, you know, as long as it's getting my kids or whatever purpose I want to get out of it, then I'll engage. But I, yeah, I, I wonder, I mean, it's like, well, that's good. It does that for your children. But, um, what, what happens to that community as more and more people engage at that level? Yeah. You can almost get this like fake faith where people are just pragmatically using the benefits of some behavior. And I think the, the C.S. Lewis obviously built Trumpkin uh, and Nickabrick either on things that he recognized in his own heart or people that he wanted us to be aware of. And I think we need to be aware of people who the inconvenient ally or the convenient enemy, I'm not sure how you would, you would put it, but beware of people who or allying yourself with people who say they want the same thing as you, but they're willing to go about it in ways that you would never go about it. Yeah. Intentions say so much more about somebody yeah. than even the conclusions they come to. And I'm just thinking of my own self, people who come to the same political conclusions that I do and that I don't respect, <laughs> you know, and I can respect people who maybe have come to political conclusions that I, that are diametrically opposed to mine but I have confidence in their intellectual humility, right? That virtuous skepticism. Yeah. Huh. So one thing that comes up later, um, I think in chapter seven, is is they're talking about how the telemarines don't want to travel to a certain part of the land and specifically because there's this superstition that Aslan's coming over the water. And although they, I think it says that they don't specifically say we're scared because it's been said Aslan's coming over the water, that superstition is kind of bled into, kind of like we talked about with ghosts and whatever else with old Narnians, that it's just carried into a continued way of thinking and now behavior that they don't go to that place or don't uh, build in that place. So um, I thought that was curious. Uh, I wonder what, what are the superstitions that we maybe hold on to that come from the beliefs like yeah c.s lewis was really apprehensive about believing in the occult or you know spirituality for spirituality's sake it's almost like the telmarines don't don't care what their people if their people believe in mythology or mysticism so long as it's not true <laughs> it, it, just because you have people believing in magical mystical things doesn't mean that they're that that's necessarily good their spirit and their spirit so it's not just believing in myth, mystical things. He doesn't want, Lewis isn't trying to give us like, just believe in things you can't see, right? Without yeah. evidence. Belief in, in the past, in religion, in whatever you're seeing as the truth that's coming through this experience, this this context of, um, you know, the Narnian revolution. He's He's trying to help somebody understand belief is so much more nuanced. Why do we believe what we believe? And to let virtue come through in all of our intellectual pursuits. Hmm. I like that. So anyway, just like the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the actual battles, even before Trumpkin gets to, finds the Pevensies, they've already started battling. And you can miss it if you're not paying attention. Right? Uh, yeah, it eases it, uh, ease into it isn't the right word. It just like all of a sudden it's like, yeah, and the telemarines showed up and all of a sudden they're having skirmishes all over the place. And it's right. just... Like they're having lunch and breakfast. <laughs> and it's not it's not going well because they're not very organized and then they decide to blow the trumpet and, and they or the horn, uh, Susan's horn. And then 
they're trying to decide what's what's going to happen. You know, they don't know how people what's who's going to come to their aid, and so they send Patter Twig the um, squirrel off to Lantern Waste, where they Pevensies first came into. You know, they're deciding where would they come if they were able to, to answer the call of the horn, and then Trumpkin's the one who who volunteers to go to Caraparavel, and so that's where we find them. He finds the the Pevensies, and. That's where we're going to stop for this part of the book, because then the next part, and we'll engage a little more with the Pevensies trial and, and seeing Aslan uh, the next time. I wanted to um, end with a quotation from the book, and this is something that's kind of really stuck with me. And when I was reading, I didn't remember so much of the book, but I did remember this part. And I think that it's one of those things where I'm not sure exactly what it means. But I know it means something good, and I want it to sink into my heart. And so this is this is Cornelius talking to Caspian in the Astronomy Tower in Chapter 4. It is the country of Aslan, the country of the waking trees and visible naiads, of fauns and satyrs, of dwarfs and giants, of the gods and the centaurs, of talking beasts. It was against that that the first Caspian fought. It is you, Telmarines, who silenced the beasts and the trees and the fountains, and who killed and drove away the dwarfs and fawns, and are now trying to cover up even the memory of them. The king does not allow them to be spoken of. Oh, I do wish we hadn't, said Caspian, and I am glad it was all true, even if it is all over. Yes, yeah, that line. First off, Lynn Redgrave, I think, is, does such a good job narrating this. I love the way that she does the voices. But Caspian believing in this thing uh, that he thought was just mythology from his nurse, you know, and then finding out from Cornelius is actually true. And he thinks it's over, but it was still, as you could see that even his, his draw, his desire to believe in the old Narnia isn't just because he wants an imaginative, imaginative plaything, you know, it's, he wants it to be true. And when it's true, there's value in that. And I think when we let our, when our mysticism when our belief in the metaphysical is really truly driven by us uh, by seeking truth i think that's when we can trust it i'm glad it was all true even if it is all over it makes me think about well what's what's the value to him to know that it was true even though it's not i mean it's done the, the kingdom is what it is and whatever he knows about it and so to what va- what value does it have for prince caspian to know that it was true you know, maybe that's the the triad of faith, hope, and charity. But as far as hope, it sounds like the old Narnia and the gods and everything that it just said in that quote. I mean, that's that gave him something to hope for, that there might be something more better to this life and to his purpose and whatever else, whatever he viewed life as right now that was contained in what he learned about Narnia. Yeah, and just recognizing that this is this is helping me realize that the the journey of faith begins with that desire yeah or that hope yeah just like you said it's something that i want to listen to and just let it sink in because i feel like there's a lot of weight in that line so i love it but there are some really deep questions that i think that this brings up and um and so that's why i'm, I'm gaining a bit uh, a deeper appreciation for prince caspian so anyway that's that, that's it for this week uh next week we're going to be finishing the book chapters eight through 15 if you're following along um if you would like to get in contact with us either through email or or voice memos um if you would like to ask a question um give a make a comment or even 
give us a correction or something you'd like to hear, um, you can contact us at bookclub, all one word, at mtnair.media. That's bookclub at mountainairmedia. And, uh, and we'll try to incorporate it into our next episodes. All right. See you next time. And thanks for listening.